at the center of our understanding of the framework for life that God has given us in the scriptures as God recounts to humanity his story. It's the beginning premise that comes from the point of creation that God is good and all that God made is good. And that comes as a revelation some to us somewhere along our life's journey. Oftentimes in life we get the idea that we're good but that we're also so filled with mistake prone and so prone to do things wrong that perhaps something is wrong with the world and we're not as good as we ought to be. And sometimes we can get the idea when things are going wrong in our world and when things are happening that we cannot explain that somehow God made a mistake in creation. That somehow in God's plans for the world, the world went awry and God somehow should be held accountable, should be called to account for what's going wrong in our lives. That thinking is common to us all at some point or another in our lives. And yet behind all of that is the bedrock foundation of the framework that says God is good. God is good. We claim that because we believe that, because the scriptures affirm that. And any kind of framework that we try to build upon which to house the story of God's story, that is also our story, must have at its very beginning point firmly etched in our minds and our hearts that despite the circumstances of our life, God is good. He created a good earth, a good universe, a good representation of an orderly life that could sustain life for us all. He created and intended for his world to proceed in an orderly kind of way, not in a haphazard kind of way, not in a way that would depend upon chance or fate or any other of the known human philosophies of understanding life, but rather within an order that God made that was not only good for God, but that was good for us. It started out in a very simple way and was handed over to humankind as a guide for us. Pity the person in this world who has no framework for understanding life and its complexities. Because without a framework that leads us to faith, there are many frameworks that lead us to disastrous thinking, misunderstandings about God and about life, and to a life that struggles to make sense out of everyday occurrences. But given a biblical framework of the story of God around which we can understand our life and through which we can see how life has meaning and purpose, then life is not only meaningful and purposeful, but life can be an experience of joy, even in the midst of the most trying circumstances that we can imagine. Now, there are many ways to tell the story of God in the Scripture, many kinds of ways to couch it. Some people talk about it in terms of the Old Testament and the New Testament, some people talk about it in terms of law, in terms of grace. Some people talk about it in terms of relationship and how God designed relationship and sustains relationships even to this day. But the way we're approaching it now is in terms of the scriptures, where we're talking about the framework for faith being within the scriptures, that really we are naming four categories in these four weeks through which the big picture of the totality of scripture can be understood. Beginning with the creation, 
The creation's main points are that the creation is good, that it's orderly, and it was given to humanity's benefit in order that humanity might continue to commune with the one who created them. And yet, because humanity is so different from all the rest of creation, it was made into such an order that we had to have the opportunity to prove that we trusted God, to prove that we would obey God, because we would then be expressing our understanding that only God is the creator and we are his creation. That's part of framework number one. We need to have that settled into our minds in concrete. We need to allow nothing else to shake that part of our bedrock foundation so that when the wind comes and the rains come and the floods try to wash away our faith in life, so strong will we be in our belief that God is good that even in the midst of the storm, we will hold on to the sure confidence that we are not alone, that God is with us. And God is not the author of the evil in our lives. We must never succumb to allowing our minds and our way of understanding things and the human philosophies to take over and make God the author of our pain. For God is not. That is a declaration of the scriptures. And we have to hold on to it firmly. Because sometimes, otherwise, when we pray with the sincerity and the purity of hearts filled with love for God, for things in the world that we want to happen and we think should happen and we call for them to happen, and when they don't happen, many times in my life up to this point, I've heard people say, God let me down. No, God didn't. No, God didn't. It is not God's fault that there's disease in the world. It is not God's fault when humans do stupid things and hurt other humans. It is not God's fault when humanity fails to abide by the order that God gave them. It is not God's fault when we wander astray. It is simply ours. Otherwise, we could not be held responsible by a holy and loving God. It must be our choice that is the problem. And that is the second part of the framework that we address today. Having a good, good creation being put into a place, representation of humanity in the Garden of Eden that God built just for us and told you could have it all. Every tree that bears good fruit for humankind is represented in that garden. Don't get carried away with specifics, please. This is a big picture God. And you can have all the fruit you want from that tree in the garden, except for one. That tree in the center of the garden is what it says at the end, right? But remember, there are two trees at the center of the garden. According to chapter Genesis 2, God put two trees in the center. He put the tree of life, and he put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, from all the trees, you can eat all you want, including the tree of life, which, by the way, is thought to mean in Scripture, not the tree of immortality, but rather the fruit from the tree that you eat. And in some way, that fruit from that tree would be the 
that which would sustain you indefinitely upon the, this earth. Did not mean that you would never die necessarily at that point, but rather it means that you might live to be a thousand and two thousand years old because you would be eating regularly from this tree of life that would sustain you. I believe it might be what we would call forever. That if you had just eaten from the trees that we were supposed to have eaten, then we would have continued to live being re-nourished, if you will, by the tree of life. But in God's wisdom, and because God was God and we are not, God placed a second tree. And he said, from that tree, don't eat. Because when you do, you shall surely die. So you can have it all but that one thing. This is your opportunity to bring glory to your creator. This is your opportunity to prove you will obey me. This is your opportunity to obey, showing your love. Now, you have an opportunity today. If you have parents or grandchildren at your house today, you say, what's my opportunity? Well, you can get them home and you can grin and say, you know what Pastor Doug said today? You got to do whatever I say all day long. Give me about 30 minutes, I'll come back with my list. You can be so unlike God that your children will probably throw toilet paper at you. And then they will be in trouble, and so will you. God made it easy in the beginning. You can have it all, but just this one thing you can't have. So when you go home as the God's representative in your household, now that i put you there, let me caution your stance. Make it easy for your children to make a choice today. Make it easy. Give them an opportunity to obey or disobey that's simple, straightforward, and easy for them to understand. Don't necessarily pick out the most difficult thing you have in the life for them to do. If you've got a Doug in your house and you say, well, I know if you're really bad, you're going to have to sit in a chair all day long. But I just want you to be quiet for an hour. So go over there and sit on the floor, but be quiet for an hour. That would have been like cutting my head off. I was surely going to fail. Don't give them that kind of choice. Give them something they can handle. Let them be successful in following your obedience. You might find it necessary to turn and look the other way before the day's over, rather than make it clear they've disobeyed you. But toward the end of the day, if their confidence is waning, that's a good time for the lesson. That's a good time for them to be reminded, you couldn't do it for just a half a day, maybe 30 minutes before bedtime, and you having overlooked the rest of the day if they haven't made it to the end of the day then that time in the chair won't be so tough. Because remember in the garden story, whenever God forced Adam and Eve, and forced is the right word, out of the garden, he took those fig leaf clothes they had to cover their nakedness, and he made clothes of skin for them as a first sign of God's grace, even when they failed. You see, God is a very graceful, loving, good, good God. And he put them in this place which had all the benefits that you can imagine. But he had to be sure that they were willing to be his children. They had to make a human choice. 
Only we humans have the right to make that choice. For we are created in the image of God. And in this story, this man who had access to God and fellowship with God, we might say communion with God, this man who was used to hearing God's voice in the cool of the evening walk among him and go out and chat with him, this God who was used to having all he needed to eat and was not worried about sickness or struggle or strife, this man who was in that situation knew he had one commandment he needed to obey. One commandment. But that was a hard one because you see, there was another person in the garden. A serpent, the scripture calls him. Some people call him the tempter. Some people call him Satan. And you see, he went to work on the woman. And he pointed out to the woman how good the fruit looked. I wonder what fruit it was that looked so much better than all the other fruits of the garden. Don't you wonder that? It's not the proverbial apple, right? We don't know what fruit it was. But it must have been a luscious-looking fruit. But I'm not so sure it was the appearance of the apple that really was the problem. It was the words of the serpent that said, God knows if you eat it, you will be like God. Oh, wow. I'll be like God. Now that fruit looks twice as good. If I eat from it, I'll know the difference between good and evil. I'll be like God. Not like a creature, but like a creator. She couldn't stand the temptation. She ate from it. She gave it to the man. The man couldn't stand the temptation. The woman was eating of it and offered it to him. And he ate it too. And the second piece of the framework of the scriptures and the key to the part of life is just this. God did not author that evil. Oh, some people say it's God's fault. He should have never put that tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden. <laughs> well, then we wouldn't have had a choice. And without a choice, we wouldn't have been fully human Without a choice, we wouldn't have been any different than any other animal in the garden. Without a choice, we could never express our love to God or our appreciation for God or have never been truthful to God. Without a choice, we could not bring glory to God. And we were created for the purpose of glorifying God and being in relationship with God. And in this quaint story that for us seems fairly preposterous these thousands of years later, is a simple prescription, or description rather, of the problem in the world, the problem of evil. And you say, nobody would really believe that. Yeah, you're, pro you're right. A lot of people, just they just don't believe that. And I get it. So they and their wisdom can go to all the philosophers for the thousands of years who've tried to solve the problem of evil, and they come up with what answer? Nothing, they say there's an inherent problem. There's always an evil and a good in the world. That's the best they got. You see, philosophy doesn't have a good answer for it. Philosophers that argue about it for longer than Jesus has been alive, other than in heaven. And they have no good answer for the problem of evil. God says simply in this story, this second part of the framework, the problem is you. 
and me. That we made a choice to disobey God. We made a choice not to trust God. We made a choice to listen to the voice of the temptation instead of to listen to God. Think about how many times that's played out true in your life. Think about when you were growing up and your parents says, if you do that, it's really going to cause you trouble. And we go off and we go, ah, my parents don't understand being 14. They don't get it. Man, the world's changed so much, they don't even understand the phone I carry around in my hand. I have to fix it for them all the time. And that's true. But what the parents do understand are the things a 14-year-old do not. So that when they say things like, if you play with fire, you will get burned, they're not kidding. Did I ever get burned? Let's not examine my body for the signs of having gotten scorched a few times. Because after all, I was so much smarter than my parents. Certainly I'm that much smarter than God. God says you can have all the fruit you want, just not that tree. Well, God's just kidding. Otherwise, he wouldn't have put that silly tree in the middle for me to look at. Otherwise, this guy over here wouldn't be telling me, it's okay to eat, you'll be as smart as God. It all looks good. You think it's hard for children to obey, and we look at them and say, well, they just can't do it. Well, no, why? you can't either. And it's all for the same reason, but no one who's a Christian should blame God for that. It's human choice that brought evil into the world. In fact, it cursed the, the woman and the fact that she would have pain in childbirth, the story tells us in Genesis chapter 3. More pain than she was ever going to have known before. And in fact, and this is a big one, her desire was going to be for her husband. Women probably don't like that, it's not real popular, but... You know, the whole feminist movement has come around to that conclusion as well. Feminism didn't wipe away with the need to be married or the woman's desire to be married for most women. It didn't say that they were less than men. It just simply pointed out that men and women were better together when they were together. Pretty simple. Pretty plain. It's just what it says. You see, when you're told you can't do something, you immediately try to figure out, well, well, why would that be trouble? Well, maybe God was having a bad day when he wrote that in the scriptures. Uh, why would God want me to do, do things a certain kind of way? Because God knows there's a certain kind of order to life and that we're best when we live within that order. And so are your children. If your children don't learn the basic concept of consequences to their action by the time they're about six or seven, you have deprived your children of one of the basic commandments of God. You're harming them for the rest of their life. You say, Doug, aren't you getting a little over the top there? Not at all. The consequence of eating from the free was a tree was death, not sitting in time out for 30 minutes. When God gives us an order to our world and we disobey it, we are bringing destruction into our lives. God believed in order. The whole book is orderly. The whole representation of God has an order to it. It doesn't always and immediately come into our focus, but it's there. It's there, and it's there with clarity and power. And life is best when we live within that order. We have to trust God and believe that if we're going to experience that reality. Now, for the man, what did he say? You're going to toil 
You're not just going to go around and pick the fruit every day. You're going to work by the sweat of your brow from the du- until you return to dust, where you surely will. And lifespan began even then to be shorter than God had planned. Because, you see, they were also cut off from the tree of life, that which sustained their life perpetually. When you think about this story, you think about this description of evil, and you read where it says, even the dust, the earth, if you will, bears the curse of the sin, then we understand where disease came from and where calamity comes from and where natural evil comes from. I don't think there would have been a tornado in the Garden of Eden. I don't think there would have been a flood. I don't think there would have been cancer. You say, do you realize how simplistic that is, Doug? And I say, give me a better understanding of the world. Any of you. Now, if there's some of you thinking, I can talk you out of that thought. I'll meet you anywhere, anytime that doesn't have other appointments, and you give me another philosophy. Troy the philosopher can't. Right, Troy? There is no true explanation for evil in the world that is any more sustainable than this, nor for creation for that matter. People say, well, yes, you know, creation began because of all this scientific stuff. None of that scientific stuff is true creation. They need particles to collide with one another. Who made the particles? Chance? That's the silliest thing I've ever heard. It was the silliest thing I heard when I was in the seventh grade. It took you that long to get taught that when I was in school. You know, they said two dust particles run together and pretty soon a few million years later we got human beings who are so complicated I can't even understand it. And I think all that complication just happened. I'm breathing right now without thinking about it. My mind is working and making decisions unlike any other creature on earth, and I had nothing to do with that. Creation by chance, by the big boom, only if the big boom was directed by a big God. Does creation make any sense whatsoever? And the only thing wrong with creation, really, is that we made a bad choice. Truth is, when we get ready to go to bed at night and say, God, Adam, Eve are really pain in my backside. I just assumed they'd never lived. Open up your ears real loudly and you'll hear God saying, you're just like Adam and Eve. You know about Adam and Eve. They were the first ones. And you still disobey me. Right? Right? Right. That human desire to be God is strong. And it's still there. But the second pillar of this framework for faith is not only the pillar of creation, but also the, the pillar of the fall, if you will. This idea that there is evil in the world, and it will not go away anytime soon. 
And the idea that God is author of that evil is taken care of in the reading of these stories in the first chapters of Genesis. You say, well, what are we to do with that? Well, I think that understanding that evil is a direct response of humanity to disobeying God and understanding that in that disobedience comes the idea that the indirect problems are the problems with the earth in which we live and that they will always be there until something happens to recorrect and reinstall what God planned. We're left without hope. But you know what happens at the beginning of chapter 4? The ongoing struggle continues from that act of grace by God. And the story of redemption comes. The third main act in the framework of God's story. Now, the strange thing about it, here we've only been three chapters when we've got two pieces of the framework. And this last piece, next week's sermon is going to be a doozy. Because it's going to cover from Genesis 4 all the way up until about middle of Revelation. <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to preach about it either, but that's my task. <laughs> Somehow, I'm going to make it clear that God has a plan of redemption in history next week. And he's working that plan out. Not at the way I would do it or the way you would do it, but he's working it out. And that's, that is the answer for the problem of the fall until the last piece of the framework is put in place. And that's called restoration. And Lauren is going to bring that sermon on the last Sunday of the month. Yeah, Lauren, that Lauren. She's going to share with you about restoration. And when God really fixes all the problems caused by the fall. I think I got talked out of that best part of the next two sermons, but that's all right. So today, just know that in order to be culpable and responsible for what goes in our life, we have to have a knowledge of right and wrong. Did Adam and Eve know what they were supposed to do and not do? Yes, they did. We have to have the freedom to choose. How many arguments are do we have with God about God giving people the freedom to choose? Why didn't God just make us all believe? Now, then we wouldn't be human and we wouldn't be in love, loving relationships because we'd have no choice. And the last thing we have to know is that we are responsible for our choices. And we cause most of our own problems, don't we? Not all of them. But most of them. And then the fall indirectly causes the rest. Doug's simple biblical framework for understanding the world. Well, preacher, you just can't believe that. That's too simple. Oh, yes, I can. And I'm willing to bet every breath I draw that is true. From now until I draw my last earthly breath. Because you see, the story, third part of the story about redemption assures me that God's word is true. And that truth resides inside me and around me and reinforces me as I continue to read from the story that is the framework for it all. And I look for that restoration that will come either when I die or when God completes his work on earth. And everything is right again. Now... We don't know what part five is after the restoration. <laughs> That's real fuzzy because the Bible ends. We don't have it. But God said, this is the framework you need and all you need. 
in order to live a joyful, purposeful life. If you're here today and that story means nothing to you, it can mean more from you starting today, right now. All you have to be do, willing to do is to insert yourself into the story of God and allow God to speak to you. And God will teach you the story and its truthfulness into your own heart and mind. If you've never done that, there's no day like the present to start.